Oh, Heavenly Father, we do bow humbly in Your presence this morning. Father, grateful for Your church, grateful for Your Word, grateful for Your Gospel, grateful for the faithful ministry of the Holy Spirit that enlightens us, that teaches us, that preserves us. Father, this morning it would be our prayer that we would approach You in faith and that You would overcome our unbelief and that we would learn how to apply Your Word. Give us insight and and learning as we study Your Scriptures together. Thank You for the great privilege of it. Father, we would do it carefully. We would be wise and we would be discerning. And may our motive only be that Jesus Christ be lifted up and that we order our lives according to Your Word in simple obedience, that we might walk worthy of the blessings of your great salvation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you are new to church world, it might come as a surprise to you to know that churches and elder boards can get involved in addressing controversial issues on which not everyone agrees. Do you know that? These issues that can impact the church can be very divisive, very emotional, very damaging to the ministry. I have noticed in my tenure of ministry that particularly when matters impact the public worship of the church, they seem to be even more difficult to resolve. I recall early in my youth ministry tenure that when I was a youth pastor, that one of the big issues that had to be addressed by the board of the church was what are we going to do with our young men wearing their ball caps in the building? This is highly inappropriate. This is a very big problem and we had to address it. Not only were the young men wearing their ball caps in the building, but they were leaving their ball caps on during worship. And I can remember that there was strong feeling among the leadership that this must be addressed. This was inappropriate. This was distracting to the worship. This was less than an appropriate manner in which to approach our worship. Wouldn't you agree with me? Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 where we find a church embroiled in difficulty and it is not the matter of wearing ball caps. Isn't it interesting how culture and cultural norms can influence what happens in a church? We are preaching our way through 1 Timothy and this is a letter addressed to the pastor at the church in Ephesus and you need to recognize that Paul is addressing something that has caused division in the church and it has become very emotional and it has become very difficult. We started into this subject two weeks ago. Indeed, it is not the matter of wearing ball caps in the building or during the worship service. But in fact, it has to do with what role women will have in worship. You talk about a matter that has been highly impacted by culture compared to ball caps. This is, this is gigantic. The way culture views women, the roles of men and women, 
What is masculine? What is feminine? What is spiritual leadership appropriate for men? What is spiritual leadership appropriate for women? And in Ephesus, that is where this took place. It is where young Timothy was appointed in leadership. There were a number of issues, and nearby on your chair you should be able to find a set of notes. It might help you this morning to glance down at those notes. I did this because I want us to move rapidly through part of our material in review, and then I want us to see clearly what I believe the Apostle Paul is teaching in this important passage, and I recognize that this is an emotional topic. This is a topic that not everyone agrees with. In fact, some people feel very strongly about it to the degree that they would leave the church over it. My goal above all else second to Jesus Christ being glorified, is that we would understand and interpret accurately the Word of God and know what applies to us today. You see, there was division in the church and it had to do with the the fact that women were standing up and taking leadership. You'll recall that last week we, we noted that the historical position on this, that through the centuries, church leaders have taken the Apostle Paul at his word in this text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 8 and going through verse 15, that the Apostle Paul took it, or that, that through the centuries, church leaders have taken the Apostle Paul as to be laying down norms for worship in the church that it is reinforced through his apostolic authority, through the teaching of the apostles in all of the churches. And that is the historical position. That is the basis upon which he gave this instruction. And we talked about it last week. We also reminded ourselves that, that the probable condition in which the reason Paul addressed this was is that Many Bible students look at this passage and who have looked deeply at chapters 1 and 2 and the whole reason why the Apostle Paul wrote this pastoral epistle to Timothy is that in chapter 1 where he addresses the false teachers who had arisen to authority in the church, many of whom were categorized as wolves in sheep's clothing. We know that from his warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He told them, you better watch out in your city. You're going to particularly have trouble with the leadership of your church and what happens in their attitudes and the false doctrine that they will introduce. And many Bible students believe that what these leaders, unqualified and non-biblical leaders who had taken over the church were doing, were elevating women to a role of leadership, not only just allowing it, not only affirming it, but teaching that their God-given role of being a mother, a keeper of home, of bearing children, was some kind of a lesser role than that which could impact the world if they were church leaders. And so corporately when the church gathered at Ephesus, Women were, were taking leadership in the church. They were publicly speaking, publicly praying. The Apostle Paul addresses this through Timothy, and he tells him in no uncertain words that this has to stop. Let's read our text and remind ourselves of it. And then let's uh, remind ourselves what we covered last week as to what, the, what, does the verses, what do the verses say and how did the Apostle Paul address this. And then I want to try to continue to... Um, Understand it by finishing out verse 15 and then making some application to some of the things that are happening to this passage and how it is impacting the church today. Let's pick it up with verse 8 where the Apostle Paul is addressing the role of men in worship. He confronts the men through Timothy. Okay, Paul is not present. He's writing a letter to a young pastor who is present, who is charged with implementing this instruction. I want, Paul says, verse 8, 
First Timothy 2, men everywhere to lift up holy hands. Everywhere means in all of the churches to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. That is that the hard attitude of the men and the unity of the church mattered and he could not have unspiritual men leading in the public worship. He moves then to the role of women in the public services. And he says in verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with the good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Likewise, as the men are to have an appropriate heart attitude as they lead in spiritual leadership and in public prayers, raising their hands before the Lord, there was not to be division. He did not want the women to be distracting in the ministry, in the public worship, by wearing immodest clothing, by turning our attention away from Christ to their bodies, by uh, competing with other women in the church for dressing uh, fancy and in high-end clothing so that there were jealousies and bickerings, but that their heart attitude was what mattered before the Lord, not their external dress. That was not to be their focus, but rather their good deeds that were appropriate for those who professed to worship God. And then he goes on to speak uh, three or four more verses that are perhaps as controversial and difficult in all of Scripture. If you want to divide Christians... Here's what he says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. What an interesting passage of Scripture. Some would approach this as the Apostle Paul addressing a cultural issue. The teen boys are wearing their ball caps in the auditorium. We can't have that at our church. Maybe they can wear them to youth group, but not on Sunday morning. And maybe this is just a cultural, uh, colloquial, localized issue in Ephesus. The women were wanting to stand up and speak publicly. The women were wanting to instruct the men. The women were wanting to be on the elder board. They wanted to say that they had the gift of preaching and that they should address the whole body. And the men evidently weren't appreciative of it. It was dividing the body and the Apostle Paul addresses it. And he says, I want you to know you can't do this. So was this just the Apostle Paul's personal opinion? Well, we've looked at this and under number three on your notes, you can just review quickly that the Apostle Paul clearly teaches that the women's role in the church, his instruction is that she was to be the student and not the teacher. He says it positively in verse 11, and then he says it in the negative in verse 12. I do not permit it. I do not permit it. She's to be the student and not the teacher. She's to be silent and not the talker. You see in the second part of verse 11, She's to learn in quietness. She's to be silent. She's not to be the talker. He says it positively in verse 11. This is how she should do it. She is not to do it. She must be silent in verse 12. The third point there is she is to be submissive and she is not to take charge. She is to bring herself in under the male leadership of the church. And we talked about how did the Apostle Paul have the authority to do this? Is this authoritative, authoritative teaching? Is this instruction for all the churches? Does this cross through the centuries? Well, we've already acknowledged that historically it was taken to be 
It was taken to be instruction that was good for all the churches and that this was the order in which God had established for the church. We recognize that the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's writing with apostolic authority. We looked at the fact that he taught this in all of the churches, 1 Corinthians 14. We recognize the fact in 1 Corinthians 11 that God has a chain of command that the head of every man is Christ, the head of Christ is God, and the head of the woman is the man, and that this is a God-ordained order. And he didn't want people coming to church and tipping up the order. Paul then appeals to creation. He appeals to the order of creation, and this is one of the main reasons why we would hold to the fact that when the Apostle Paul says... I am instructing you, I do not allow. People will camp on that and say, well, this was just the Apostle Paul's chauvinistic, uh, Jewish rabbi-type mindset where women were to be secondary and the men were to be lifted up. See, you heard the Apostle Paul say, it's kind of his old Pharisaic background creeping in. I don't allow this to happen. But then he goes on and he appeals to creation. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first. And we studied that last week and we we can see in Genesis chapter 2 and we know from the order of creation that God built into the system that the man was to rule over creation and in his incompleteness, God brought to him what? He brought to him a helper, a helpmeet, one to come alongside him, not one to rule over him. And so Paul is appealing to the order of creation that God meant it this way. This is how, that is perhaps even one of the reasons why God didn't create Adam and Eve at the same time. Do you ever think about that? It would have been just as easy for God to create Adam and Eve simultaneously, but he didn't. Why didn't he? Because it is a statement on the emphasis that I want the man to lead and I want the woman to be the assister in the role. In our world, we don't like that kind of talk. We think that, that God just doesn't get it. That's crazy. God designed us. God made us to function to our maximum capacity. And when we tip the order, we don't recognize that we don't get it. God gets it. Do we get what God is saying? And I know that when it comes to... I mean, doesn't it seem crazy that ball caps is a problem? I'm going to tell you, we about had guys resign their position on the board and leave the church. It's so inappropriate. And when the youth pastor, the new youth pastor, brought food and movies to the church basement, scandal was alive in the worship of the church. <laughs> and we can't hardly get our brain wrapped around that now. What are you talking about? That is a non-issue. That's how culture impacts us. And when we come in and, and we think about all the ways that our world has addressed this issue, and then we're going to say that in our worship, that women are going to play in the public portion of worship a secondary role, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. We'll address this a little bit more in a minute. But let me say that we are not teaching that women are inferior to men at all. We are not teaching that women are less gifted than men. We are not teaching that women have a lesser important role than men. We're saying that men and women are different and that God designed our roles for a reason and that we need to submit to Scripture, not fit Scripture to our cultural norms. Paul doesn't stop there. And in verse 14, you remember that he addressed lessons from the fall. 
And it's very interesting what he says. So not only in the positive realm does he appeal to the order of creation, but he appeals to the order of the fall. You remember the story when Eve ate the fruit being deceived by the serpent that was beautiful. She was overwhelmed by the moment. And it says in verse 14, And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. The unspoken standard is, therefore, that's another reason why the man is to lead spiritually and not the woman. So what what happened? You can look at your notes and it might be helpful and more brief if we just read what I wrote. The lesson from the fall is this. She was created to be the helper. She was created to be the assister, not the leader. And basically what I understand Paul to be saying here is that in the fall, what we see is a role reversal. We see Eve taking the lead, being deceived, and using her God-designed power of influence to lead Adam into sin. And Adam did what? He allowed himself to be influenced by her all the time knowing that it was wrong. He, he gave away his position of leadership and oversight as protector and leader. He was not deceived. Therefore, theologically, Paul holds him accountable for bringing sin into the world. Romans chapter 5. But practically speaking, in this passage, Paul holds Eve accountable for bringing sin into the world and introducing sin to the man. Paul's whole point is, we just got the roles backwards here. She took the spiritual leadership and she's the one who decided what God was saying. And, And Paul is saying to us, not only from the order of creation, but from the very order of the fall, I am telling you, God expects men to take the leadership. It's interesting, isn't it? We then move into verse 15, and what an interesting verse it is. Now, let me qualify it, okay, and tell you that you could probably line up the Bible commentaries, and I think you could easily come up with a half a dozen different interpretations of what this passage means. This verse, particularly, verse 15. Admittedly, up front, it is a difficult verse to understand what exactly does Paul mean by that. What I understand him to be saying and what I present to you this morning is that he is providing the practical solution for calming down the church. He is providing the practical solution for for resolution among the body. He's, He's begging the ladies to understand their role and to see God's hand in it and to not try to be something God never designed for them. So let's read the verse and see if we can understand this under the practical solution, number four in our outline. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It would be good right now for the Apostle Paul to walk on the stage and say, look, let me just tell you what I mean by that. Well, let's try to grab what he doesn't mean by it. First of all, what does the word saved mean? I think one of the things we can say with confidence is that it is not some point of redeeming grace. It is not some point or factor that women, it's when you have a child that God saves you and brings you into his kingdom. Well, that creates all kinds of problems that don't fit scripture. What about barren women, childless women? Are they somehow inferior to their sisters? No, indeed, not biblically. We also know that it is not by works of any kind that we can do that can somehow turn the head of a holy God to look at us with favor and say, look at them, they had a baby, I saved them into my family. That's utter nonsense. 
Salvation is always and only in Scripture presented as by grace. That is God's undeserved favor to us. Through faith, that is our believing it, even though we can't explain it or understand it. That's faith. Believing it to be true personally. Appropriating, taking on for us by faith the reality that Jesus was our substitute. Went to the cross, hung on the cross for the sins of the world. And that those who would look to Him would live, recognizing that He alone could adequately fulfill the demands of a holy God by by offering Himself as a sacrifice for sin that He did not do, that He knew nothing of, that He took upon Himself, so that we could then take a righteousness that we know nothing of, that we could not create in and of ourselves. He took our sin by faith. We can take His righteousness and we are holy in the presence of God and be accepted as His children. That alone is redeeming grace. That alone is the path of salvation. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, not by any works, lest anyone should boast. So what does this passage mean? In short, the answer to what I think that the Apostle Paul means in this verse is this, that there is an incredibly powerful spiritual leadership role that has nothing to do with public or corporate ministry in the local church, but it has everything to do, fill in the blank, with influencing the next generation for Jesus Christ. Let's continue to look at this. And basically, here's Paul's mindset. You women think that spiritual leadership in the church is so important? So much so that you're going to forego your role of bearing children, having a family, raising children? Paul wants them to say, don't do that. You'll be saved by having children, not by not having children. Your worth will be elevated by the reality that God gave you the unique role that no man can duplicate. I don't care how many surgeries he has. No man can duplicate the role of what a woman means to embedding truth and teaching and nurturing a child so that they grow up to follow after Jesus when they're older. It's like, okay, you want 45 minutes on Sunday morning and you think you're hot rod spiritually? I want to tell you, invest your whole life in children in the next generation. God uniquely gifted you for it. So what does the word saved mean if it doesn't mean... John MacArthur's point, and I'm not 100% sure I agree with this, but um, you know who am I to talk back to John MacArthur? He wrote the Bible. So... Saved, he says, saved or preserved from the stigma of leading the human race into sin by countering the fall and the curse by raising up godly children. In other words, he's saying that the word saved means that you'll you'll be redeemed or pulled out or saved from this reputation of being the dummy who ate the fruit first. But now you can reverse the fall You can reverse the results of the curse by pouring truth of God and Christ in the Scripture into the next generation, exactly opposite of what she did when she ate the fruit. I think it kind of makes sense. I would say that it would be advisable for the whole church to not get your head cut off for whatever this verse means. But I think it makes sense what I'm saying, don't you? It's difficult to understand a little bit. So what then does childbearing mean? And what if a woman has no children? I've already addressed that. And how is, the Paul, how is Paul using childbearing here? 
It would be my take, and as I've read the commentaries, it seems to make sense to me that my take would be that what Paul is using when he uses the word childbearing, he's categorizing women as a whole. Alright? Universally, what can women do that men cannot do? They can have a baby. Okay? So categorically and universally, women bear children, men don't. Okay, I'm not talking about any of the weird stuff going on in the last few years. and That is outside the will of God and it is beyond bizarre and it's from the pit of hell of men trying to alter their genetic framework and their phys- physiological anatomy, blah, blah, blah. Universally, women bear children. Categorically, women are uniquely equipped to do this. And so I think the Apostle Paul is using it in a general sense more than a specific sense, as in, if you haven't had a child, then you aren't saved from the fall. I think he's stepping back and looking at mankind as a whole, and he's saying, categorically, women have children, and women, instead of identifying with their sister Eve in the results of the fall, or their mother Eve in results of the fall, they should recognize that God has uniquely equipped them to have children. And he's using it as, as a, a word that captures everything that moms and women do. And I've noticed around the church and other places that a lot of women who haven't been able to have children, even if it was the longing of their heart, often become some of our greatest lovers of children and influencers of children. And, and they highly impact other people's children in a way that no man could do. God just gave women an ability to do that. So I think that this childbearing thing is kind of a categorical statement about what women can do and that nothing a woman does could be more important than this. So what does it mean then if they continue? If they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety or that which is appropriate for Christian women. Basically, I take those phrases, which are all very common phrases used in the literature written by the Apostle Paul, to basically just be a description of redeemed women who follow after Christ. These women who live out the Christian life and live for Jesus and pour themselves into their children and into the next generation, whether it's their child or not, are reversing the effect of the fall. And you don't do it by getting up on church on Sunday morning in the pulpit. You do it by pouring your life into that child seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I think that makes sense based on the context of the passage A couple of quotes from the commentaries that were helpful to me was uh, one by John Kitchen who wrote a, a commentary on the pastoral epistles for pastors. He wrote, A mother's influence often outdistances that of church leaders in actually advancing the purposes of God. Would you agree with that? I think so too. Both roles are important. I hope you need a pastor. I hope you need elders. I know you do. God designed it. But never trade in your mama for your pastor. That's his point. And mama should never try to be a pastor. She should want to be a mama. That's her greatest influencing, impacting role. It is God's will, says William Hendrickson, a noted New Testament scholar that I rely upon heavily in his New Testament commentary set. 
Um, it is God's will that the woman should influence mankind from the bottom up. That is, by way of the child, not from the top down. That is, by way of the man. So don't come to church to teach men to influence the world. Be content and, be, and recognize your God-given privilege and the power of your God-given influence to raise your children from the ground level on up. Amen? Can I ask you a question? Why is it of all the roles that people have that being a wife and a mother is one that our culture just about wants to spit out? You notice that? That kind of like of all the waste of your life, all the waste of your intellect, all the waste of your potential is to want to have babies and raise a family and be keepers of the home. And have you ever noticed how little girls almost always inevitably want to have babies and have a home and be keepers of the home that God just designed them that way. See, God never teaches us things that go against the way we're hardwired in our culture always, often, let me at least say that, our culture often will cut against the grain of how we're hardwired and try to tell us that we don't have it right. It is, it, it's illogical for a culture to minimize the role of mothers and children. And yet in our culture, we maximize some kind of kung fu gun shooting, wild, crazy, buildy, leap building, leaping woman. And a woman who's at home with children, especially if she has more than seven of them, is somebody who has lost her ever-loving mind and surely didn't go past the sixth grade. I don't get that. I don't get that. And so, because of our culture, and I believe with all my heart that the Bible interpreters who have taken on this passage and have turned it and said, no, 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 you cannot get your instruction from a bunch of dead guys in the grave. In other words, the historical position doesn't matter. And the church fathers don't matter. Don't let dead guys influence your theology. Look at, look what's going on. And so starting about 1969, all the literature changed. And from then on, you can, you can pile up in stacks all of the writing that's going on to say one way or another that Paul doesn't mean what Paul said so clearly, except for verse 15. I call this the liberal revision. What do I mean by liberal? That they vote Democrat? I don't know. They probably do, but that doesn't necessarily mean what I mean. That the liberal revision is that they do not take the Word of God literally necessarily. They do not hold the Word of God to be their standard and they open up to man, open up the Scripture to man's interpretation and they elevate at an equal level the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. So the question is, what do contemporary theologians and Bible interpreters do with these verses? Well, the answer is simple. You have to discredit the source. And this is what's going on in many of our, our new evangelical and liberal seminaries across the culture, across the country. Seminaries that are teaching that you need to reject the Genesis account. You need to, number one, you reject the Genesis account. If the Apostle Paul is turning to Genesis for his authority in the order of creation and the result of the fall, then one of the things you have to do is you have to discredit that story. This is a huge issue in our colleges, Christian, quote-unquote, Christian colleges, and institutions of theological higher learning across the country. 
They say that Genesis is unreliable literature. They say that a liberal theologian would argue that Genesis, that the Genesis passages are simply not historically accurate. They're not historically accurate. They would say it's an allegory, that it's representative in some picturesque way of Jewish oral tradition that was written down, that somehow in the mind of man, even though he evolved over the course of millions of years, that he had to have in his mind a beginning for himself, and so this allegory came out of oral tradition of, the, of Jewish history. Or, or the weaving in of other cultures. And so though there are spiritual lessons here, it is not an accounting of actual history. Therefore, they discredit it. I unequivocally disagree with that. I believe that Adam was a real man and that Eve was a real woman and I believe they were the very first ones that God created and I don't believe they evolved from monkeys or fish or anything else. I believe that they were uniquely created instantly out of nothing, by the, by the word of an all-powerful God who has a plan. Our problem is we're very intimidated by scientists with PhDs to the degree that we will allow it to say, well, I don't know if the Bible really makes sense. The second thing they will do is they will reinterpret the writings of the Apostle Paul. They will reinterpret the writings of the Apostle Paul. You might not be aware of the fact that for, for the last about 20 years, and particularly in the last 10 years, there has been a huge movement in liberal seminaries and Bible scholars and published authors who have their PhD in New Testament to say that Jesus and the Apostle Paul did not agree in their teaching. And to say that much of what we give account for what the Apostle Paul wrote is not true. And I want to tell you, it's nothing more than an attack to discredit what the Apostle Paul is teaching because his teaching does not align up with our culture. People don't like that. And they reinterpret the writings of the Apostle Paul. The critic would argue that the Apostle Paul simply misunderstood Genesis. That's one thing that's said commonly. Paul didn't get, didn't get Genesis. He misunderstood it. They would say that the Paul's understanding of the Genesis account was based upon incorrect, incorrect Jewish and patriarchal understanding that was the current thought of his day. In other words, the Apostle Paul understood precisely what was taught in his day, but we know now, we now know that that was from Jewish tradition and the patriarchal teaching and that they, they had an incorrect understanding of world history and, uh, and, and these norms. You've got to discredit the text. They will say things that, that even some have gone so far as to say, and there's many books written about this, not the kind of books that anybody enjoys reading, but technical, high-end, New Testament scholars who are liberal and who do not hold to the authority of Scripture will say, the bottom line is that First and Second Timothy and Titus weren't even written by the Apostle Paul. That's a very common trend today to take 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, pull it out of the Bible and say, they were written probably 200 years after the Apostle Paul by somebody who was a real student of the Apostle Paul, who really knew how he thought and really studied his writings, but that they, rep they misrepresented Paul. There's all kinds of things. They'll say that 1 Corinthians 14 isn't even to be considered in part of the Bible. They'll say 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, that's where Paul also teaches that women should be silent in all of the churches. They say, that doesn't even belong in the Scripture. 
And you know what they base it on? Their opinion, basically, because in all of the ancient manuscripts, it's there. It's all there. Textual critics can show. And so some of our denominational scholars and some of our liberal scholars and people who are now standing in our pulpits are taught this in liberal seminaries and they discredit the source, they discredit the Apostle Paul, they reinterpret his writings, they realign culture over, they realign culture over scripture. That is, they bring, they would say that cultural events trump scripture. We see this going on all the time. This is, this is, uh, this is a whole new era. We're not going to function like those old guys did. And, and we know that our culture has evolved. I would suggest that it doesn't take a, lot, a rocket scientist in sociology to recognize that our culture has devolved. Fourthly, they redefine the meaning of Scripture through translation. And I want to end with this and just a few brief applications in conclusion. Okay, so what are we saying? You open your Bible to 1 Timothy. You have other reinforcing scriptures. You see that the Apostle Paul used the Bible to, to, to build and base his instruction theologically for the order in the church, for leadership in the church. And so what are we going to do? Well, we have to reject the Genesis account. We have to reinterpret the Apostle Paul or throw him out completely. We want to let culture trump scripture. Or here's something else we can do. Let's take our Bible and let's come up with a new translation and let's just translate it the way we like it. (laughs) I don't know if you're aware of the fact that this has become a huge issue as well. It began around 1997. There's a little magazine that a number of you take or know about. It's called World Magazine. World Magazine was not very well known in 1997 and one of their... One of their writers got on a story that there was a, a very quietly behind the scenes, a Bible translation group underneath a major publishing company that was, was coming up with a, a, an incredibly gender neutral translation of the Bible. World Magazine exposed it. It became very controversial. It became a big issue. They were criticized harshly. They called this translation of the Bible the stealth translation because it was being kept in secret because the committee and the company knew that it was going to rock the boat. And so they turned the, they did even more than turning the pronouns in scripture that are masculine and in the original Greek and Hebrew are masculine. They They made it gender neutral. Now in some places, that's what it means, isn't it? When they say men, the men of the world or something, the scripture puts it in the masculine. And we don't speak that way anymore. And so in in the defense of wanting to create a translation that people understood the language, they created it. It got shut down. In about 2001, a publishing company then put together a committee, and you maybe have heard of the TNIV. It's called Today's NIV. Again, it was a gender-neutral Bible in, in a lot of ways, changing a lot of what was written in Scripture so that it didn't lean towards the masculine side. It wasn't quite as bad as the stealth version, but it was bad enough that men like Dr. Dobson and others caught on, Chuck Colson, Christian leaders, and they shut it down. It became such a wave across the churches across our country that the company decided just not even to keep it in print. 
So we fast forward to just this past year, and what's happened is the publishers of the NIV, which was published and produced, which I preach out of in 1984, which for a variety of reasons has been criticized as too loose of a translation anyway, but I have enjoyed using it, beginning to use it in my youth ministry days and finding it useful for young people, and I enjoy preaching out of it. They came up with a translation called the NIV 2011. NIV 2011. And now, incrementally, it's not as bad as the stealth version, it's not as bad as the TNIV, but again, they took the approach of making it a much more gender-neutral NIV than the 1984 NIV. Not only are they producing the NIV 2011, but they own the copyright on the 1984 NIV, and they are no longer publishing the NIV 1984. You can't get it unless it's just on a shelf somewhere. You can only get the 2011 NIV. I want to tell you that this has caused some consternation and discussion and buzz at our elder level for almost a year now. We've been talking about it. We tasked one of our members to put together a report on it and to make recommendations. We ended up discussing it for hours as to what our response should be. We have just minutes left in our service this morning, but let me give you an example of one of the This is like the most volatile point happens to be in the 2011 versus the 1984 NIV, the very passage that we've been studying two weeks ago and today. And so I've shown you how they've done it. 1984, in our passage, let's just look at the bold print. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over man. The New King James Version translates it, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The New American Standard translated it, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. The ESV, English Standard Version, I do not permit women to teach or exercise authority over a man. The NIV 2011, I do not permit women, women, a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. And you think, well, what's the big idea? And probably in the Greek, the nuance was there, that she wasn't to usurp authority, and so you could translate it in English to assume authority. But here's what happens. Across our country, the ordination of women has become very popular in many churches. And I am convinced that the Bible translators are are influenced by the culture of our day to the degree that it influenced their translation work. The result of this in the 2011 translation rendering is this. It is the promotion of the idea that a woman can indeed occupy the pulpit, the pastoral staff, or the elder board as long as she is not assuming the position apart from the approval and oversight of the elders. Okay, So they camp on that phrase, she is assuming. That is, she took it upon herself and she forced herself on the congregation. But by changing the translation and altering it and widening the understanding of it, they would say that as long as she is under the authority of the elders or has been appointed by the ruling body of the church, then she is released to serve in the public services by preaching or being on the elder board or being on the pastoral staff. She's not assuming leadership. She has been appointed to leadership by the male leadership. I call that some kind of translation gymnastics. It's leveraging the text. I'm sure that there's people who would stand up and defend it, and the translators are some fine scholars, many of which who are egalitarian in their theology. That is, they believe that women can be ordained to begin with. 
Well, as a result, we have to ask the question, then what are we to do? Should we... Does this affect the way we think? And what about this Bible translation issue? And so the short of it is this, that after a significant discussion at the elder level, we have decided and we made a motion and it passed unanimously and is recorded in the minutes of the elders' meetings here at Fellowship Bible Church that in the very near future, probably like next week, Pastor Van is no longer going to preach out of the NIV, but I'm going to preach out of the ESV. I can hear you groaning. I also want to say that you can keep using your NIVs here. And if you've bought 2011 NIVs, that's okay too. I don't think you're like going to grow horns or you're not of the devil. But we felt like it was important for us when recognizing that there were better translations and that we were starting down a road of some, some interesting turning based upon the cultural influence of the day. That Fellowship Bible Church would not continue that trend. And that, the, that recognizing that as people need Bibles, they're going to buy NIVs because that's what I'm preaching out of, that they will be buying the 2011. We've also wanted to buy a chair Bible and place it in, and you can't buy 1984 version NIVs. Now, I could take and keep preaching out of the NIV and put it up on the screens for you, but I don't want that. I want you to bring your Bible to church. I want your Bible open. I want you to study. I recognize the fact there's probably six different translations represented in the congregation today. Part of the reason that we decided to go with the ESV is the fact that A, it's an excellent translation, and B, it is easy to follow along with. If you have a New King James translation or if you have an NIV, you can, should be able to track with me quite well. I want to tell you that I didn't do this cheerfully. That I'm really reticent. I really have enjoyed my NIV 1984. It's practical. I'm a very practical kind of person and teacher. I'm less a scholar and more of a, a pastor from the pulpit. And so prayerfully and we think wisely, we've made this decision to move to the ESV. Again, I want to tell you, you won't be criticized if you have an NIV. We won't, we won't have that. Like, oh, you've got an NIV. That's nonsense. But we just think there's a better translation and that we should use the better translation. We plan to produce a pamphlet that ex- describes and explains our position on this more thoroughly. For those of you who will not be able to eat your dinner peacefully if you don't fill in the blanks, number one is, on conclusion, number one is the need for spiritual humility. Spiritual humility to accept biblical authority. Number two is the need for doctrinal conviction. Doctrinal conviction to withstand liberal distortion and marginalization. And what I mean by that is is that people who hold to what I've taught this morning are continually being more and more marginalized. Thirdly, the need for biblical discernment. The need for biblical discernment to evaluate our culture. Don't we need that? And we're getting slammed. We better know our Bibles so that we can interpret the culture. We don't interpret our Bibles through the lens of the culture. All right? Let's just stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. And so, Father, as we go, may we have a a heart of humility and may we have a a renewed commitment to being people of the Word.
that we would be like the Berean church that studied the Word daily and had discernment because of it. That we would be the kind of church that people recognize are different because we've been with Jesus like the disciples were recognized. Something different about those guys. They've been with Jesus. Father, in no way would we want to be haughty or arrogant. In fact, we admit readily our ignorances and our, and our inability to barely even keep up with what's going on. But Father, we love our Bibles and we believe it's your word. So help us to walk in it, and to live it out, and to teach it to our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.